The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You can join us live Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12, or you can join us online at cityrev.org. So glad that you're here with us. If you have a Bible with you, you can open up to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. That's where we're going to be. Um, 2 Chronicles chapter 26. While you're doing that, I'm going to say hello in the chat to the people online. So go ahead. Hey there. Happy Sunday. We have, uh, I'm sure, many families who are out and about uh, this Christmas season or spending the new year uh, around or maybe watching at home. But just want to say we're glad that you are and invite you to uh, check in with the chat, comment, and uh, share what's going on in your life as a way for us to stay connected in this season. Now... This year, as, as we think about this being the last Sunday of 2020, it's, it's a good time to kind of reflect on where we've been individually, where we've been as a church. And uh, as I think about what we've uh, learned, what the Lord has been teaching us as a church this, this season, we've talked a whole lot about things like God's provision. In fact, we spent some time singing about and learning about what it means to trust God as our provider in an uncertain time. We talked a lot about over the summer about this idea of courage, that in an age of fear, what does it look like to be faithful and courageous walking through uncertain times where it's so evident we're out of control and we have no bearing on what's going to happen tomorrow. What does it look like to be a people of courage? This Christmas season, we journeyed through the Christmas story talking about the theme of hope and what it looks like to cling to and dream of hope in a season of despair. And all of those lessons that we've learned have been fitting. You know, uh, it's almost instinctive as human beings. You've probably had this in your life whenever you've experienced loss or tragedy or some measure of pain. There's something instinctive in our souls. Even if you're not necessarily a religious person, uh, there's something instinctive about turning to a higher power when things are hard. There's something about going through loss and pain that cues us that we need something bigger than ourselves. It cues us to our need for God's help. And so a lot of this year, we've talked about what does it look like to trust God in the valley, to trust him as provider, to trust him as the one who gives us courage to give us hope. Well, today I kind of want to take a turn a little bit, and we're going to look in a passage in 2 Chronicles 26 that's going to answer a different question. We spent a lot of time talking about how do you be faithful to the Lord in seasons of despair, of loss, of uncertainty. Today we're going to talk about what does it look like to be faithful to the Lord in a season of success. What does faithfulness look like when you're given more influence, when you're entrusted with more power? What does faithfulness look like when your family life is actually going really well? What does faithfulness look like when you got a promotion or your business starts to skyrocket? Or what does faithfulness look like when you're the family that your friends go to and say, hey, your kids are amazing. How did you do it? How are they so incredible? And they start looking to you for advice and counsel. What does faithfulness to the Lord look like when we're on the mountaintop? Second Chronicles chapter 26 is going to present to us a case study in how to fail at being successful. You see, there's a lie in our culture in that the goal is success, to be successful, to make a name for yourself, but in success comes danger. Success in itself is not a bad thing. In fact, we're going to find out in 2 Chronicles 26, success is something that God gave to this king that we're going to study. It was from the Lord. However, success brings with it some sinister challenges. 
that are somewhat sneaky and difficult to figure out and to detect. And so we're going to look here and learn from Uzziah's failures about how to steward success. How do you steward influence when wealth is entrusted to you? When a certain measure of of power is given to you? How do you steward that and do that in a way that honors the Lord? So with that in mind, let's look at 2 Chronicles chapter 26, starting in verse number 1. Here's what it says. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, And he made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. So to clarify, that's a 16-year-old king, okay? Parents of teenagers, you know, like, think about that, okay? Imagine, 16-year-old, fret, like puberty, like pimples on their face, king, okay? King of the entire nation of Judah. And he built, verse 2, he built Eloth down by the Red Sea, uh, further south, expanding the kingdom of Judah. And he restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers, Uzziah was 16 years old. He repeats it in case you missed it. He's 16, okay? He's 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. Okay, so here's what's happening, just to give you the context. Uzziah begins his reign as king after his father. Now, his father was still alive at the time when Uzziah became king, which is kind of an anomaly. Typically, a king would assume their role after the previous king dies. But the previous king, his father, ended so poorly. Uh, 2 Chronicles 25 outlines a train wreck of a finish of, of this king's life. So Uzziah's father basically wreaks havoc. They lose a number of battles to the northern kingdom, Israel, Judah's in shambles. And so 16-year-old Uzziah begins to reign as king in a time of disarray. But Uzziah has kind of like a spiritual sensei. He has someone that he studies under as his grasshopper. This guy's name is Zechariah. And we're told Zechariah instructs Uzziah in the fear and instruction of the Lord. And Uzziah learns from him. And then there's this very key phrase. I want you to look back down at your Bible with me. At verse 5, real quick, there's this phrase that's somewhat of a foreshadowing of what's about to come. Verse 5, it says, As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Think about that phrase. This chronicler who's recording, inspired by the Holy Spirit, recording these historical events, he's dropping little narration hints at what's about to follow. As long as Uzziah sought the Lord, God made him prosper. But watch, because there's going to come a moment when he turns. Look at what happens next. Verse 6, this is going to be a laundry list of some incredible accomplishments of things that Uzziah did. Look at what it says. He went out and made war against the Philistines, their ancient enemies, and he broke through the wall of Gath the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod, all these cities. He built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbel and against the Munites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. He built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns for water. For he had large herds, both in the Shephelah, which is the low land in the valley, and in the plain. And he had farmers and vineyards in the hills and in the fertile lands. For he loved the soil. 
Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war in divisions according to the numbers in the muster made by Jael, the secretary, and Maseah, the officer under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. The whole number of the heads of the father's houses of mighty men of valor was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,500 who could help make war, uh, make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, and stones for slinging. In Jerusalem, listen to this, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. Okay. All right. We just read Uzziah's resume, basically. Okay. Uh, if he was to turn in a resume to apply for a job, it would be 50 pages long and it would be a list of all of these accomplishments. Uzziah did a whole lot. And so just to kind of sum up some of the accomplishments Uzziah makes here, right here that are described, he has advancements in technology. We read about the fact that he made machines. Okay, this is 2,800 or so years ago, almost 3,000 years ago. Think about what machines looked like then. But apparently he made these machines that would sit on the towers to protect their city that would catapult and hurl large stones and arrows at oncoming armies. So if an oncoming army wants to try and mess with their cities, these gigantic machines would hurl stones and shoot arrows at them as they came forward. Uzziah not only was this incredible leader in terms of his military prowess, he also was an incredible leader in terms of just expanding the kingdom of Judah. Judah at this point under Uzziah's reign had become more expansive than it had since the time of Solomon. He was incredible. In fact, he was so amazing that people all the way in Egypt heard about Uzziah, king of Judah, and they heard about him and his fame spread throughout the land. On top of that, he was also a man of the soil. He had a, a green thumb, you might say. He was a farmer. He appreciated vineyards. And so maybe he had a special vineyard that was for his weekends that he would go to. But he had built out all throughout his territory. I mean, he was a renaissance man before that was even a thing. He was good and skilled at everything you can imagine. Everything he touched turned to gold. Here in this passage, the narrator, the chronicler, makes it clear by using this almost like redundant, repetitive list of all of his accomplishments, all of his military uh, successes, makes you feel overwhelmed to set you up for what's going to be said next. Remember, we were told that he, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. But watch what happens next in verse 15. So look at verse 15. We'll recap that first part. In Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners, to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor and they withstood King Uzziah and they said to him, it is not for you Uzziah to burn incense to the Lord but for the priests, the sons of Aaron who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary for you have done wrong and it will bring you no honor from the Lord. So right here we read Uzziah's turn, his downfall. After listing all of these accomplishments, the author, 
describes what happens in Uzziah's life. And I just want you to notice verse 15 and 16, right at the center of this narrative that makes up this whole chapter, chapter 26. It describes this progression in verses 15 and 16. It started with Uzziah being marvelously helped. He was marvelously helped. Think about that phrase. God helped him marvelously. God was with him. He empowered him. Marvelously helped. And then all of a sudden he became strong. Because of all the success that came his way because of God's help and favor in his life, he became successful. And in his strength, I mean, that strength that he was given, the fame that he accrued, that, that wasn't something that was in Uzziah's control. It's just a result of God's blessing on his life. He became strong. But then in his strength, he grew proud. And he commits this sin. Now, we just read it a moment ago. He went into the temple to burn incense. And you think to yourself, what's the big deal about that? Why is that so grievous? Why is that unfavorable to the Lord? Well, there are a number of layers to why that's significant. In fact, next week, we're going to spend a whole lot of time right here finishing up this chapter, dissecting why that is a, from the story of the Bible perspective, a significant and heinous sin. But needless to say, for now, 2 Chronicles 26, making it clear, he goes into the temple to burn incense. The Azariah, the priest, confronts him and says to him, hey, this is not your job to do, Uzziah. The sons of Aaron, the priests, we have been consecrated by the Lord to do this. We're the ones that are supposed to do this, not you. It's not your lane, Uzziah. Next week, we're going to see how Uzziah responds to being confronted in rage. He gets incensed. He's angry, furious. And the story continues to unfold and it brings about his destruction. So follow the logic then. He was marvelously helped and that brought strength to him. But in his strength, he became proud and in his pride, it led to his destruction. So if we're going to have a conversation, how, how do we steward success? How do we go about navigating through those seasons of life? where we're given or entrusted with some amount of influence or a promotion, whatever that success might look like in your life, how do you steward that situation? Well, Uzziah is a case study in how not to. He starts off well. He's described as doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord, and he's studying under Zechariah in the fear and instruction of the Lord, but things end terribly for Uzziah. See, success, success whispers a series of pretty seductive lies. Success can speak some words to our souls that we don't even catch happening in our, in our minds, in our brains. The enemy, the accuser, Satan, will take successes, things that God has done in our lives, evidences of God's favor and hand in our lives, and the enemy will try and take those and hijack those to speak lies to us. What it looks like is small little moments like this where you look out and you say, look at all I've done. Look at all that I've accomplished. Wow, I've got this. And then it morphs more into, well, there's no way if that person would have had to do what I did that they would have been able to do what I do. It morphs into comparison and looking down upon and trying to puff ourselves up. And then it morphs more into when I face a challenging moment, I have confidence, not because I'm trusting or seeking the Lord. I have confidence because I've got experience. Because I've been here before and I've done this before and I've got this. See, his strength had created this soil that became fertile ground for pride to rear its ugly head. And in his pride, it led to his ultimate 
downfall. Success can whisper these lies to our souls and they go undetected. For Uzziah, I mean, we just read decades worth of accomplishments. I mean, this man was more successful. He was the valedictorian who went to the Ivy League school, got a law degree, and is working at the best law firm in town in the corner office. Like, that's Uzziah. Everything he touched turned to gold, and it all fell apart. So I want you to think for a moment, as I look at this passage, the way it relates to pride and talks about pride, the nature of success, I think of water skiing. Anybody here, or people online, you ever been water skiing? Anybody here? Raise your hand. Water skiing, okay. Uh, I've water skied a total of one time, uh, and I have never done it since. But water skiing, just to visualize what that act is like. So you're in the water, you've got a life vest on, or if you're smart, you have a life vest on. And then you've got water, you've got skis attached to your feet. You're holding onto a rope, and then there's a person in a boat who's pulling you. Now, in order for water skiing to work, you literally, you need two people. You need one person in the water on the skis, and you need one person driving the boat, okay? Now, if you're an experienced water skier, and you know, like, cool tricks, and you can do jumps, and all this stuff, maybe, like, gold medal, like, level water skiers, no matter how good, how experienced, how amazing and accomplished you are at water skiing, you never outgrow the need for someone in the boat to provide the power for you to do what you do. You never get experience beyond that. You will always need someone to empower you to do what you're doing. In fact, if you try and think, well, I'm a good enough water skier, I don't need anybody, you'll just sink, okay? It, it won't work. You'll just stay there in the water uh, and, and not be very fun. In some ways, this is a picture of how success works in our lives and how success worked in Uzziah's life. Uzziah had built up all of these accomplishments, and it's clear from the text. It repeats the phrase multiple times. God helped him. God helped him. He marvelously helped him. As long as he sought the Lord, the Lord made him to prosper. God was empowering his success, enabling his success, giving him the gifting, creating the opportunities. He was with him. But the moment came in Uzziah's life where he thought his experience or he thought his success, his accomplishments, that they were enough. And so he no longer would need help. And so going into the temple to burn incense when he would have known how serious of an offense that was. I mean, he's Uzziah. Do you realize who we're talking about? He's Uzziah who has herds and who's a man of the soil and who's defeated the Philistines. He's Uzziah who built machines for goodness sake. I mean, do you realize who you're in the presence? This is King Uzziah, the great king. And he grew in his strength, full of pride. And so what takes place? He goes into the temple and God sends some priests. Praise God for these priests, these men of courage, men of valor, who go in after Uzziah. We need these type of people in our lives. And they go to Uzziah and they confront him. And it's Singled out one of the priests who comes. We know one of their names. It's the name Azariah. Azariah. In fact, go ahead and say that name with me. Say Azariah. Put it in the chat. Very good. Azariah. Now, what's interesting about Azariah, who's a priest in this time and who's the one speaking on behalf of the 80, is Azariah's name means something very significant. You see, all throughout the passage, there's this word link throughout it. The author makes it clear. God helped him. God marvelously helped Uzziah. And that Hebrew word for help is in the name Azariah. In fact, the name Azariah means the Lord has helped. 
Yahweh has helped. So follow the logic. Uzziah has arrived in this place of success because of God's help in his life. But in his strength, he grew proud, convinced it was him. He's at the center of his life. He's the one who can now go and decide what he can do in the temple if he wants to go. And so what does God do? He sends, the Lord has helped. He sends Azariah to remind Uzziah who exactly is the one who's responsible for all of this success. So Azariah confronts him, says, it's not for you, Uzziah. And again, next week, we're going to see how he just gets enraged. It leads to his downfall. Success, it presents a certain set of challenges that sometimes we avoid. We, we all often look to the scripture or to the Bible when we're in the valley and we're feeling discouraged and we're feeling lost to try and find some guidance. It's rare for us to be in a moment of success and influence and think, all right, God, I really need your help right now. But more often than not, the scripture gives Harsher warnings to those in positions of power and influence, those who are successful, there are harsher warnings in the scripture about the dangers of success compared to the dangers of despair. There's this soil that's created that if we don't tend to that garden, pride will rear its head and begin to grow and take root. And so with this passage in mind, here's the kind of the main idea I want for us to simmer on this week as we close out this year and get ready for a new year, 2 Chronicles, in, in my view, reading through this scripture, instructs us to dwell in the place of dependence. To dwell in the place of dependence. What do I mean by that? To live in and sit in, get comfortable in the place where I'm utterly dependent on the Lord for everything. Where I'm dependent, where I'm not independent where I don't come up against a circumstance and think, I've got this. But I come up against a circumstance and I say, God, would you help me as you've been faithful in the past? God, you have this. It's in your hands. You've got this. It's to dwell in this place where I'm dependent on God's help. Second Chronicles 26 identifies the fundamental problem in the human soul. The biggest problem and challenge in your life, the biggest problem and challenge in your marriage, challenge in your work career, whatever it might be, the biggest problem and challenge in the human soul is that of pride. Is that we would have ourselves be the center. Is that we would see ourselves as independent, not needing God, when in reality the teaching of scripture is that right now your heart is beating because God wants it to be. That right now there's blood running through your veins because God's sustaining power is actively sustaining your body to do what it's doing right now. He's the one who's behind it all. He's empowering it all. And so to dwell in this place of dependence is to be in tune with reality. I want you to think about pride for a moment. Not only is pride repulsive when someone's full of pride, when everything's about them. Not only is it repulsive and makes us just feel like, I want nothing to do with you. But pride is just being out of touch with reality. Assuming I did all of this, that's plagiarism. Think about what plagiarism is. Plagiarism is saying, hey, this work is my work. Trying to pass off someone else's work as though it was your own. Pride is the ultimate plagiarism, saying, no, I'm the one who did all this. I brought this about. No one else helped me. I've got this. When it's God who empowered, when God who gifted, when God who provided the opportunity, when God who, protect, who directed and protected... 
And so dwelling in the place of dependence is to sit in this place where we're like little children. Jesus talked about this in a number of ways in the Gospels where he talked about the danger that comes with success. Again, don't confuse the two. Success isn't bad. God gave Uzziah success. And everything, as Uzziah sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. Success is not a bad thing. Success, though, comes with its own set of temptations. Success comes with its own set of challenges, as does despair, as does difficulty. And each are assigned different measures of different types of crosses that we have to bear as we follow Jesus. Your cross might look different than my cross. But at the same time, those different sets of challenges, what does it look like for us to be able to walk through them? I love what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. He's talking about the way in which the Father has revealed things. He says this, At that time, Jesus declared, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, uh, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus here is having this moment of prayer out loud before others, and he's thanking God that he has hidden certain things from the wise and understanding. What does that mean? That he's hidden certain things from the wise and understanding. Those in Jesus' day who had their understanding of the way things worked, who were those of esteem and power and prominence, those in a Greco-Roman culture where wisdom was everything, the philosophers, the religious elites, the Pharisees of the time, Jesus says, Father, thank you that you've hidden the secret things of my kingdom from those who think they don't even need me, from the wise and understanding from the ones who don't even think to ask for help because they're wise. They don't need the help. Thank you that you've hidden from them and instead you've revealed them to little children. If you think about a child, the primary characteristic of a child is that they are utterly dependent on their parents. They can't get by a day without mom or dad. He says it's those who humble themselves like a little child those who are like little children who can receive the secret things of the kingdom because we're in a posture to receive the help of God, the marvelous help of God by admitting and, and saying to our souls, we need his help and his grace. And so Jesus instructing this, in fact, he announced this good news his entire ministry. He talked about what it means to be reconciled to God and this good news of how you and I can be reconciled to our creator, how we can spend eternity with God in a new heavens and a new earth. This good news starts with a bitter taste. Because Jesus begins this news by announcing that our pride, our wisdom and understanding is actually what's blinding us to our need for the gracious help of God. All of our intellect and accomplishments and successes, if we aren't careful, blind us to the desperate need we have for reconciliation and grace from our Creator. And so here, it's describing with full clarity the gospel, how you have to become like a little child. It's bitter before it becomes sweet. The way that one enters into the kingdom of heaven, the way one becomes a follower of Jesus is by first admitting, I desperately need the grace of God. I'm not good enough, I'm not strong enough, I'm not wise enough, I'm not accomplished enough to earn any merit before God. I desperately need and I can only count on the mercy of God. 
But oh, when you get on the other side of that bitter taste, boy, is it sweet. That when you realize your heavenly father sees you and knows you as you are and delights in you. He sees you as you are and he sees the pride in your heart and in my heart. And he says, yeah, I want to work in your life and take that out and instill it with a heart of worship of me. That he still loves us and pours his grace on us and forgives us. This is the good news and you can experience that. Experience that reconciliation with God that starts with admitting our desperate dependence on him. To dwell in the place of dependence. And so how do we handle this? I want to give you briefly three ways that we can dwell in the place of dependence. Where we can live as those who are utterly dependent on the Lord. Here's the first way. I want you to write this down. Let's talk about how to handle praise. How do you handle praise? What do I mean by that? Uh, here in the passage, Uzziah, on multiple occasions, his fame is referenced. You can only imagine if he accomplished all those things. Imagine all the times people just said, oh, Uzziah, you're so amazing. King Uzziah, you're the greatest king we've ever had. There haven't been generations with any king like you, Uzziah. How do you handle that? How do you steward that? Now, before we break that down, there's an important discernment tool we need to have. We need to first be able to discern is, is this person giving me flattery or are they trying to honor and encourage me? Those are two different things. Flattery is buttering someone up for manipulation purposes or trying to get something in return. Right? We've got to distinguish. Is this flattery? Is, is this unnecessary? Is this unfounded? Or is this, is this a genuine aff- affirmation, a compliment, an encouragement? Someone is thanking us. That's the first thing. But here's what you do with, with, uh, with praise. You do what Jesus did, which is to receive and release. Receive and release. This has been so helpful in my life. When someone has come up to me and said, hey, thank you for this. You helped me with that. When someone comes to you in your life, in your your job, and says, hey, great job. You're our best salesman. You've done better than anybody else this year. Someone gives you the honor of asking your advice and counsel because they honor you for the way that you lead your family or the way that you parent or the way that you're a friend to someone else. And so they go to you. What do you do with that? How do you steward that moment? You receive and release every moment in the gospel of John. You you look at it. You read through this entire story, this basically a biography of Jesus' life. And at every turn when there's crowds or people who praise Jesus and talk about how wonderful Jesus is, though Jesus is God himself, every single time Jesus says something like this, I've done what my father has given me the power to do. He receives the praise and then he releases it to the Father. In other words, when you go through that moment and someone encourages you and honors you, receive that. Thank them for it. Don't don't feel like uh, being encouraged is a bad thing or that it'll automatically inflate your ego. I mean, if that's where you're at, you need to have that conscious awareness. But you receive it and then you release it. And so you say thank you to the person. And then right as soon as that conversation ends, you say thank you to the Lord. God, I released that to you. Thank you for using me. God, that was you who empowered me to do that. God, that was you who gave me the opportunity to even do that. You're the one who gifted me. You're the one who's currently making me breathe right now. God, it's all about you. Thank you. You receive it and release it. Because here's what you don't want to do. You don't want to be so afraid of, of being encouraged that you actually miss out on the voice of your heavenly father trying to bring you some affirmation. 
One of the things about being the body of Christ we're exhorted to do is to encourage one another and outdo each other in showing honor. And if we're afraid, well, I don't want to say anything because it might inflate their ego. If what you have is a word of encouragement, a word of honor, then share it humbly. Because that might be the Lord using you in that person's life to bring and solidify their identity, to help them to see how the Lord is using them. And so we want to be a church that we encourage one another. We honor one another. It's this affirming type environment. But what will we do with it? Well, we receive it and we release it. I love the way that C.S. Lewis distinguishes this. Uh, He has a chapter in his book, Mere Christianity, on pride. And here's how he describes what you do when you're being praised. Here's what he says. Pleasure in being praised is not pride. The child who is patted on the back for doing a lesson well. The woman whose beauty is praised by her lover. The saved soul to whom Christ says, well done, are pleased and ought to be. For here the pleasure lies not in what you are, but in the fact that you have pleased someone you wanted and rightly wanted to please. The trouble begins when you pass from thinking, I have pleased him all is well. To thinking, what a fine person I must be to have done it. The more you delight in yourself and the less you delight in the praise, the worse you are becoming. When you delight wholly in yourself and do not care about the praise at all, you have reached the bottom. So insightful. Our our radar should be going off when, when praise or affirmation or encouragement becomes something that just fuels just this pride inside of us, fuels this thought about how wonderful and amazing we are, rather than being encouraged that we in some way were an impact or contributed to the company or helped our family in some way, we've sunk to the bottom. And so we got to navigate that receive and release. You take that word of affirmation. You thank them. Say, thank you. Praise God. That's wonderful. And then you Take that to the Lord. I've heard one person say before, it's kind of like this. You take all the encouragements and affirmations you get. You take all those encouragements that people give to you and you receive them kind of like you're receiving a flower. And then at the end of the day, you take your bouquet of flowers. Maybe one day it's just one little flower. Maybe some days it's several flowers. Some days it's no flowers. But you take that bouquet of flowers and you offer it before the Lord. You say, Lord, thank you for using me. It's receiving and releasing. Now, not only do we need to be equipped to handle praise when we're dealing with success, we need to also know how to have key relationships. I want you to write that down. Here's the second thing. Way to dwell in the place of dependence. Handling praise well. And then second, key relationships. Uzziah had a key relationship in the beginning of his life as a 16-year-old. A man named Zechariah taught him the fear of the, and the instruction of the Lord. And something happened in his relationship with Zechariah, whether he stopped asking Uzziah for input, he stopped assuming the posture of a learner, or maybe Zechariah passed away and he never found that other person, the confidant to help him. But we need key relationships in our lives. People who know us well enough to know and spot when pride is starting to bottle up inside of us. And so you need these kind of people. I need these kind of people in my life. And so I want to actually give you some practical things to do in light of this text. Who is the person in your life? Who is the person that you trust, who's spiritually mature, who loves Jesus? Who's the person in your life that you've given permission to give you feedback? Who's the person in your life that you said, hey, if you ever see something in me that's out of line, or if you see me starting to become selfish, if you see something in me that I can't see, please tell me. 
please reach out to me. And maybe you have that kind of person in your life, but you haven't asked them that question in a while. This week, ask them the question, hey, what do you see in me? What are the areas of my life where I may not see, but there's weakness? There's something I, I might be compromising. Would you show me? We need those key relationships in our lives. There's something we never outgrow. No matter how accomplished or wise or successful, we never outgrow the need for counselors. There's this uh, great podcast I listen to. It's the, called the Craig Rochelle Leadership Podcast. It talks about what it looks like to be a leader in every sphere of your life. In one of those podcasts, he shares something that is so incredibly insightful. He says this, the more successful you become, the more difficult it will be to get truth from people around you. The more successful you become, the more likely it is that the people around you will tell you what you want to hear, not what's actually true. Because there's either this very human motivation to not offend this human motivation to try and get something in return, and so they say what they think you want them to say. But with more success, with more influence, with more power, as that comes into our lives, the harder it is for us to hear the truth from people. So we all the more need people in our lives that don't just have kind of proximity to tell us that. We certainly need people with proximity in our life that are close to us. We need people that we've verbally given permission and asked and invited for that kind of feedback. That's how you dwell in the place of dependence. And then be ready for what they might share. And resist the urge to be defensive or to explain away, but to receive. Key relationships. So we need to know how to receive and release praise. Second, to have key relationships. And then three, cover everything in prayer. Cover everything in prayer. In verse 5, we were told that very somewhat dissonant foreshadowing that as long as Uzziah sought the Lord, the Lord made him to prosper. That word for seeking the Lord is a common Old Testament word for prayer. To inquire of the Lord. To go before God to ask his help and direction. At some point in Uzziah's journey, maybe it was after the fifth city or the tenth machine that catapults stones. Or the eighth military defeat or whatever it is. All of those accomplishments. At some point, Uzziah stopped. Seeking the Lord's help. He grew proud. Somewhat, slowly, this progression took place in his heart where he no longer thought it necessary to ask God's direction or help with what to do next. And one of the greatest weapons we've been given to help combat pride is prayer. Prayer covering everything, whether it's little or small, helps us to undercut pride. Because the moment I ask for God's help, I'm doing two things simultaneously. Number one, I'm inviting the Holy Spirit to come and work in this situation. I'm inviting God to help me in this area of my life to come and empower what I'm doing, to give me wisdom beyond my abilities as a finite human being. I'm inviting His power. But number two, I'm undercutting my pride in admitting I, I need your help, God. I confess I need you. And so cover everything, the little things and the big things in prayer. Whether it seems like it's something that you've done so many times. So the, the scripture talks about the idea of praying without ceasing. Praying continually of being in constant conversation with God. I think of Nehemiah who had this very famous moment where he goes before the king. And he's having these moments be between God where he's responding to the king as the king's asking him questions. And then he's praying in between each response. It's this habit, practice of being in communication with God. Covering everything in prayer. 
God, I need your help today. It's just a Monday. I have my same to-do list, but I need your help today. Would you give me the power to do it? God, help me to make this decision well. God, would you help me with this test? God, would you help me with this this project I'm working on? God, would you help give me wisdom for this parenting situation I'm walking through? God, would you help me on this date that I'm going on to discern what I need to do next? God, would you help me? Help me. When we cover everything in prayer, we're inviting the Spirit's work and at the same time, we're admitting our need. So how do we dwell in the place of dependence? We need to be able to know how to receive and release praise. We need key relationships in our lives. We need Zechariah's. We need Azariah's. People who will come and boldly say, it's not for you to do that. People who love you enough to tell you the truth when it's not what you want to hear. And then we need that last one of being in that place where we cover everything in prayer. So I want to just close our time just reflecting on some of you may, right now as you've heard this, you may realize that you yourself, you need to humble yourself before God. You need salvation. You need Jesus in your life. You need to turn to him and admit your pride and receive Jesus at the center of your life. See, the good news, the gospel, is that God has made a way for broken, prideful human beings like you and like me to be reconciled to him. And right now, in a moment of prayer, of saying, God, I am depending wholly on you, you can be reconciled to your creator. And I want to give you that opportunity right now. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? as we close in prayer. If you're in a place where you'd say, that's me, I, I, I need to turn to Jesus right now. I need God's grace, I need his help in my life. Then right there where you are, would you just make these own words your own? Would you just say something like this to, say, to God? Say, God, I need you. God, I confess I've been at the center of my life. God, I admit I've been full of pride. I confess to you, I take credit for things that you've blessed me with. And I admit that I need you. Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for coming to reveal the truth of your kingdom to little children. God, would you help me to be like a little child, to depend on you. I believe you died for me, Jesus, and I want to follow you with my life. Father in heaven, our, our prayer together as a church is that we would never outgrow or out-experience our desperate need for you our sense of dependence, that this coming year would be marked by us as your little children clinging to you in every moment, seeking you, giving you all the praise that you alone are due. Father, I pray for those who are here, those watching online, that whether they're in a season of success right now in some area of their life or they're about to head into one, Lord, that you would help give them the spiritual eyes to see the landmines. Help them to see the, the blind spots, uncover their eyes, bring people in their lives, bring Zechariahs and Azariahs who will call them out. Pray that for my own life, Lord, that there would be people who would speak up and say, Justin, I, I see this in you. 
Lord, we open ourselves up to you. We humble ourselves before you and we declare we need you. We're your little children and we can't make it a single moment without you. So empower us. We seek you and we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Hey, if a moment ago you decided to put your trust in Jesus as your savior, that moment where you said, Jesus, I'm trusting in you and turning to you, I want to encourage you to share that with us. We'd love to send you a Bible. So if you go to cityrev.org slash faith, you can go ahead and fill out that form in a few seconds and we'll put a Bible in the mail, get that to you as a way of helping you get started in your journey of walking with God, experiencing his new life that he has for you. And then for those of us who are here, if you made the decision today to put your trust in Jesus or you want to have more conversation about what that looks like, I want you to go over to our guest services area. We have a Bible for you as well. We love to connect with you, to pray with you, pray for you, and celebrate the decision you've made today. Well, hey, we're going to close in a fitting way. We're going to declare Jesus is at the center. And so would you go ahead and stand up with us? Let's sing this. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.